0: about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate in the Cell Molecular and Developmental Biology graduate program at the University of California, Riverside. And I will be your host for this web series. So the purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Every career has its highest prize, and the highest prize for a scientist is the Nobel Prize. It is the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of human biology and ability to treat diseases. Today, we will be examining the second Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to Sir Ronald Ross. The Nobel Committee chose to give Ross the award, quote, for his work on malaria, by which he has shown how it enters the organism, and thereby has laid the foundation for successful research on this disease and methods of combating it," unquote. We will be talking a bit about malaria disease, the work Ross did to prove mosquitoes spread malaria, and at the end, we'll talk about modern methods to control mosquito populations, including the use of genetically modified mosquitoes. So first, a little bit about Ross, the second recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Ronald Ross was born in 1857 to British parents in India. His father was a general in the British Army and Ross spent the early years of his life in India before returning to England for his education. He became a member of the Royal Society of Surgeons and then in 1881 returned to India as a member of the Indian Medical Service. Now while in India, he carried out his duties for the authorities as a medical doctor, but he also became very interested in malaria. It was in India that he would carry out his research addressing how malaria is transmitted from person to person. Now let's talk for a minute about malaria disease. Descriptions of malaria can be found from ancient times, and the ancient Greeks in particular documented cases that bear the characteristic marks of malaria. The disease itself is caused by parasitic infection. And there are five species of parasites that cause malaria. But they all belong to the same genus, Plasmodium. So for those of you who might not be as familiar with scientific notation for uh, species and genus, so genus is the classification right above species. And we often list species and genus together. So for Homo sapiens, humans, right? Homo is the genus and sapien is the species. So, Homo sapiens, genus Homo, Homo sapiens, full species, right? And so, you can have many different species within a genus. So, for example, you can have Homo neanderthalensis, right? Neanderthals are still in that genus Homo, but still a separate species from Homo sapiens, humans, right? So, the malaria parasites all belong to the genus. Plasmodium, but the most common and deadliest species of malaria parasite is Plasmodium falciparum, or or otherwise called P. falciparum. Once someone acquires an infection of the malaria parasite, they begin to show symptoms within a week to 10 days after infection. After some early flu-like symptoms of headache, fever, tiredness, the infected individual enters daily cycles of chills followed by fever. And they'll go through several of these cycles and there's also typically a swelling of their spleen that accompanies this without treatment the condition of the individual can gradually worsen and serious disease can set in which includes stroke organ failure and can eventually result in death now malaria was a global problem even back in ronald ross's day the disease was and is found in hot wet regions Principally, it's found in the tropics, so Africa and Asia, though also in Europe and the Americas. It was noticed back in ancient times that the disease predominated in these hot marshy places, and people believed that malaria was caused by the bad air of the bogs. So the name malaria itself is derived from the Italian phrase meaning spoiled air. However, by the mid to late 1800s, around Ross's time, Great discoveries were taking place in the fields of microbiology that were shaping how people thought about malaria. Two of the biggest figures of the time were Robert Koch in Germany and Louis Pasteur in France. So these scientists were responsible for developing the germ theory of disease, the notion that microorganisms are the cause of human diseases. So people began to wonder if malaria, instead of being caused by quote-unquote bad air, was in fact caused by microorganisms. The French scientist Alphonse Laveran was the first person to observe the malaria parasite, so specifically, he correctly stated that the parasite enters red blood cells, where it replicates asexually and eventually bursts the red blood cells, after which it spews all its progeny parasites, which go on to infect new red blood cells. Laveron's discovery was historic, and it was the first identification of a parasite in the blood, and he would eventually go on to win a Nobel Prize himself for that discovery. A second important discovery was made by the Canadian scientist William McCollum. He showed that the malaria parasite went through a sexual stage of its life cycle in addition to an asexual stage. So looking in the microscope, McCollum observed some of the parasites growing flagella and becoming motile. And these motile parasites would then fuse with the non-motile parasites. McCullum noticed that this was just like the process of sperm fusing with egg in mammalian reproduction, and he correctly deduced that he was observing sexual reproduction of the malaria parasite. However, despite all this new and exciting cellular knowledge of the parasite, people still didn't know how the parasite spread from person to person. Now enters into the story our Nobel Prize winner Ronald Ross. While taking a brief trip back to England from India, Ross set up an important collaboration with a London-based scientist named Patrick Manson. Manson and other scientists had begun to hypothesize that the parasite might be spread by mosquitoes. In Manson's case, he noted that sexual reproduction of the parasite only occurred after the blood from patients was allowed to cool. Manson hypothesized that in order for the malaria parasite to complete its life cycle, the parasite had to move from its human host to another host, possibly a mosquito. Now this was a cool hypothesis, but he needed proof to back that up. Ross, after meeting Manson, returned to India on a mission to get that proof. The proof that malaria was spread by mosquitoes. Now, it would take him over two years to find that proof. He had a strategy. His strategy was to take healthy mosquitoes bred from larvae in his lab, have those mosquitoes feed on patients sick with malaria, then a few days later dissect the mosquitoes and check for the presence of the parasite under a microscope progress in his discoveries was slow and often discouraging so he had his primary duties as a doctor to attend to which took time away from his work with the mosquitoes additionally he kept having tiny but infuriating setbacks with his mosquitoes and with his patients so for instance the mosquitoes didn't breed efficiently or they died before they matured, or they wouldn't feed on the malaria patients once they did mature. And on the other hand, his patients, well, none of them really wanted to be deliberately bit by a mosquito, understandably. Or else the patient had already received medication that reduced the parasite burden in their blood, which reduced the chance of the mosquito picking it up when Ross had the mosquito bite the sick person. So despite all these difficulties in getting samples, Ross still managed to look at about a thousand mosquitoes under the microscope. He eventually did get a thousand bites with his mosquitoes of malaria patients and looked at those mosquitoes under the microscope. However, he never saw the parasite in the mosquitoes for two years. Personally, I feel for this guy, like frustrated with setbacks in research Oh my gosh, I have been there. I know the feeling. That is very frustrating. But Ross, to his credit, did not give up. He eventually obtained a new strain of mosquito. His work for the first two years had focused on two different species of mosquitoes. One he called gray, and the other he called brindled. And he got this third new strain then, which he called brown. He only had eight of these new brown mosquitoes, but he decided to carry out his experiment again. So he let... All eight of his mosquitoes bite a malaria patient, and then he checked the mosquitoes for the malaria parasite under the microscope. He dissected the first four of those mosquitoes the same day of the feeding, but he didn't see any sign of his parasite. Another two days after the feeding, he dissected one of the mosquitoes, but still didn't see any of the malaria parasite, so he's down to three mosquitoes now. On the fourth day of the feeding, he dissected two more of the mosquitoes. One of them still showed nothing, but the other had pigmented cells in its gut, identical in appearance to malaria parasites. And on the fifth day, he took his last mosquito, dissected that one out, and again, he found those pigmented cells and more of them this time. Pretty great, right? Well, Ross certainly thought so. He was so excited by his finding, he named the day of his discovery Mosquito Day, and it's a real holiday marked every year on August 20th. I swear it's true, you can Google it. (laughs) So pretty great, right? But not so fast. There's a slight problem with these results and the experiment that Ross did. Looking at these brown mosquitoes, someone could argue that the pigmented cells Ross observed weren't malaria cells, but mosquito cells that just happen to look like malaria cells. Lots of cells that function very differently from each other can look identical under the microscope. So how do you show that those pigmented cells are really malaria and not some cell naturally found in the guts of brown mosquitoes? So to figure this out, you need a negative control. In science, Controls are set up as a standard we compare our experimental results to. Negative controls lack the expected outcome of whatever we are trying to observe. So in Ross's case, he was trying to observe malaria cells in the gut of the mosquito. So he needs to have a negative control where the mosquitoes would not be expected to have the parasite in their gut. So the proper way to set up this experiment would have been to have a group of the mosquitoes bite a healthy person, and then have another group of the mosquitoes bite someone sick with malaria, and then compare the two groups of mosquitoes. The mosquitoes that bit the healthy person would function as a negative control. You would not expect to find malaria in the mosquitoes that bit the healthy, not sick person. If you set up the experiment with these two groups of mosquitoes, If you see the malaria cells in the mosquitoes that bit the sick person, but not in the mosquitoes that bit the healthy person, you can then truly say that the cells are malaria cells. However, Ross did not include this negative control in his study. He seems to be aware of this in his report of his finding. He gives the excuse in his paper that unfortunately, he could not obtain any more of the mosquitoes, and that he meant to verify his own results as soon as he could get more of the bugs. Now, despite this flaw in his research, Ross's report was enthusiastically embraced by his research partner, Manson, who spread the news all over Europe in the scientific circles. And everyone pretty much eventually accepted that the cells were malaria cells. Not everyone was convinced, but most people came to accept that Ross had found malaria cells in the gut of mosquitoes. But even once this was accepted, even once it was accepted that the cells in the mosquitoes were really malaria cells, there was still one more thing missing. All Ross had shown so far is that mosquitoes could be infected with malaria parasites. He had not yet shown that these infected mosquitoes then go on to infect healthy people. In other words, he hadn't shown yet that the mosquitoes transmit malaria. He hadn't closed that loop yet of the transmission cycle. He wanted to. Oh boy, he wanted to show that. He wanted to close the loop. But unfortunately, the military required his services. So a month after his discovery, he was transferred to Bombay and then to Calcutta. And in Calcutta at that time, there were very few malaria cases for him to study. So he ended up closing the loop of transmission, but not in humans. He switched to birds. So he began working with a version of the malaria parasite that infected birds, And he showed, this time with the proper negative control, that the mosquito's gut became infected with this bird version of malaria parasite. He also showed that the parasite migrated to the salivary glands of the mosquito and that infected mosquitoes could transmit the parasite to previously healthy birds. So through these sets of experiments, He completed the transmission cycle of the parasite in birds and proposed that the same thing was happening in humans. Now, unfortunately, he never had the opportunity to show the transmission in human malaria by mosquitoes. So it was left to another group, an Italian group, led by Giovanni Grassi, who became the first to demonstrate the full mosquito transmission cycle of malaria in humans. So once that was solved, everyone was ecstatic. This was truly a Nobel Prize worthy discovery. However, when it came time to award the 1902 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, the committee was like kind of not sure. Like a lot of them were saying, oh, this should go to Ross. He made super great discoveries in this area, but maybe it should go to Grassi because he's the one who actually showed the transmission cycle in humans. And also Ross's original experiment was kind of sloppy without the negative control. But at the end of the day, they decided, somewhat controversially, that Ross should get the full prize. And so that made him the second Nobel laureate of physiology or medicine. Now let's talk for a minute about the outcome of Ross's discovery. He had successfully identified mosquitoes as a vector for malaria. Let's define that word vector. A vector of disease is an agent that transmits a pathogen from one organism to another. So vector-borne diseases are a major source of disease around the world. And the mosquito is the deadliest vector out there. Mosquitoes transmit not only malaria, but a wide range of other parasites and viruses. This makes them arguably the deadliest animal on the planet. Every year, over 1 million people die from diseases acquired by mosquito bites, and billions more people get sick. Most of these deaths are from malaria, which kills about 750,000 people or so every year. Now, back in Ross's day, that number was even higher. Nowadays, though, we know a lot more about the vector than Ross did. We know now that malaria is spread by a specific kind of mosquito called Anopheles mosquitoes, mosquitoes belonging to the genus Anopheles. These were Ross's brown mosquitoes. Now other types of mosquitoes cannot be infected with malaria and so they don't spread the disease. So one of the outcomes of Ross's discovery was that it linked malaria epidemics to regions where the Anopheles mosquitoes were found. His discovery also helped explain why colder regions where mosquitoes had a harder time breeding saw much less malaria. But the main significance of Ross's discovery was that by identifying mosquito bites as a cause of malaria disease, he gave us a target to prevent malaria. Following Ross's discovery, the focus shifted from treating malaria to preventing malaria, specifically by stopping mosquito bites. So huge public health plans were put in place, screens were put on windows, mosquito nets were distributed, mosquito-killing insecticides were rolled out, lots of things were tried. So the result of these public health measures was the elimination of endemic malaria from many countries, including the United States. Malaria has been considered eradicated from the United States since 1954, However, there are still many countries where malaria is endemic, mostly in Africa. And many travel-related cases of malaria occur in the US every year. So a travel-related case occurs when someone comes down with malaria after traveling to a region where malaria is common. And this is concerning, because we have Anopheles mosquitoes here in the United States, especially in the southeast. And it's possible that someone could bring malaria back to the U.S., get bit by a mosquito, and trigger an epidemic of malaria here in the U.S. That's a possibility. And because of that possibility, U.S. scientists closely track cases of malaria, both imported cases and those around the globe, and they're researching new ways of controlling both the malaria parasite and its mosquito vector. So let's talk for a minute about one of these mosquito controlling strategies. One of the really cool developments of the last 20 years are genetically modified mosquitoes for controlling mosquito populations. Recently, a UK-based company called Oxitec got approval to release 750 million genetically modified mosquitoes in the Florida Keys. So I'm going to break down a little bit of the biology particularly the molecular biology behind how these mosquitoes work. So the mosquitoes are all going to be male, so they will none of the genetically modified mosquitoes will bite humans. Only the female mosquitoes bite humans. Now these modified male mosquitoes will all contain what we call a conditionally lethal embryonic gene that has been inserted into the mosquito. Let's break down that phrase conditionally lethal embryonic gene. So a gene, right, you've probably heard the word gene before. It's a bit of DNA that codes for something, usually a protein. So a conditional gene is a gene that's only expressed under certain conditions. A conditionally lethal gene is a toxic gene that is expressed only under certain conditions. In the case of these mosquitoes, they are given an antidote in the lab that suppresses the lethal gene product. So the gene is only expressed when the antidote is absent. The absence of the antidote is the right condition for the gene to be expressed. It's like a little switch. An embryonic gene, as the name implies, means it is expressed in the embryonic stage of the organism. So these mosquitoes express a toxic gene only when they're larvae, so not when they're adults, and only in the absence of an antidote. So once these adult male mosquitoes are released into the Florida Keys, they can go find and mate with females in the wild. All of the offspring that that female gives birth to will inherit that toxic gene from the male. Since the antidote to the toxic gene is not present in the wild, all the offspring that that female gives birth to will express the toxic gene and die before they reach adulthood and have a chance to breed. So Oxitec has already done several trials with their genetically modified mosquitoes in Brazil, and the result was an 85% reduction in mosquito populations. Pretty cool, right? This is a really cool genetic trick to control mosquito populations. Now, the trial that will be happening in the U.S. next year will be to control a specific invasive species of mosquito called Aedes aegypti, which is a vector for many deadly viruses, but not malaria. However, the use of genetically modified mosquitoes to control the anopheles mosquitoes that carry malaria could become standard someday in the not too distant future. So keep an ear out for any news on that. So this concludes the second episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on August 26th, 2020. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. So this week, we talked about the discovery that malaria parasite is transmitted by mosquitoes. But what about the discovery of the parasite itself? How did we figure out that malaria disease is caused by a parasitic infection? Well, that discovery was worth its own Nobel Prize. And that will be the topic for the next episode of Notable Nobels. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you then.